Thank you, Jesus. Well, what a week it's been. This is my fifth night out in a row. And I got another one Friday night. I'm feeding back here, guys. Uh, and I got another one Friday night. And I think something Saturday night. It's that time of year where you, you really, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Amen. I'm so excited to get into the Word of God tonight. We're going to look at the second half of chapter one of Titus. Uh, and so I hope you've got your Bibles with you. And uh, I don't care if it's on a c- computer, an iPhone, an iPad, or if it's a real book. I'm just glad you have it with you. We're going to look at some powerful stuff tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name on your word. The word that you have preserved for us, given to us, sent to us. And Lord, Titus is just another part of the love letter you've sent to the church of Jesus Christ. To be strengthened by, edified by, to build our faith and to comfort us in the scriptures. And we pray truth prevails tonight. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer right from your heart to him? Say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. Renew my mind. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Now turn to your neighbor and tell him, right living from right truth. Amen. Right living from right truth. Now, um, we began Titus last week, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a half a chapter a week, and that'll take you six weeks to finish this book of Titus, and then I really, really, I'm, I'm salivating to get into 2 Peter. 2 Peter is so strong. Uh, but you know, Titus is incredible as well. We're going to look at some strong truth tonight. How many of you know that truth isn't always easy to hear? Amen? All right, tonight we're going to be looking at confronting false teachers. Now, I know there's none around now, but this is for way back then. Right? There's no false teachers now. Okay, last time we looked at what healthy church leadership looks like. And Paul list, listed character qualities. He didn't list degrees or IQ or natural talent, but everything he gave us for leadership qualities had to do with character, character qualities and lifestyle that should accompany godly leadership. And we close with verse 9, which talks about a spiritual leader's commitment to the Word of God. And he says this in verse 9, holding fast. Everybody say holding tight. There's some things you better let go of quick, and there's other things you better hold tight to. Holding tight the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort. Now look why he needs to hold fast the word of God. So that he can exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, notice one of the reasons a church leader must be, folks, he must be a man of the word. So that by sound doctrine... The church leadership might exhort and convict people who contradict. So in the second half of chapter 1, Paul is going to launch into a description of false teachers who contradict sound teaching. And they are everywhere. Have you noticed, and well, you may not have because you're, you're here, but 
If you were to go church shopping, you would be amazed how many churches no longer teach sound doctrine. People who just get up and teach the Bible as it is to people as they are, are their ranks are thinning in these last days. So Paul is going to describe false teachers for us tonight and show us how they contradict sound teaching of the Word of God. They, they come against it, they twist it, they skew it, they resist it. So let's look at verse 10. Now here he's immediately describing false teachers. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now, tonight we're going to be looking at, at, at several key words and, and what they mean out of the Greek language because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, the, the common everyday Greek language of that day, and a little smattering of Latin, but primarily Greek. So we're going to look at how, what these words meant in the original Greek. So insubordinate, insubordinate meant and means uncooperative, with a defiant attitude towards duly appointed authority. False teachers, you will find, are, will not receive the authority of God in another person. And they resist the authority of God in their own life. False teachers are accountable to no one. I've noticed something strange in the body of Christ. That many people who claim to have ministries, to, to have been called and and they say, I've got a ministry of this, that, the, I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet, I'm whatever. But, but, but some of the people who claim that are some of the most unaccountable people I know of. They're not accountable to anybody. They don't have a church home. They don't call anybody pastor. They're not accountable when they ought to be the most accountable. I've always contended that if God gives you a parachurch ministry, which means a ministry where you go out and you have a ministry beyond the local church, you know, feeding the hungry, teaching, preaching, whatever it may be, that you ought to be sent out of a local church with your local church's blessing so that you are undercovering. But so many of them are not. They are rebels at heart, these false teachers, and they refuse to recognize authority. They hate authority. Now, the same Greek word for insubordinate is used to describe disobedient children. You recall the Old Testament story of when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rose up against Moses and Aaron? Remember that? And they challenged their authority. They rejected the leadership of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron, and they came against them. And they, and they said to them, paraphrase, they said, who do you think you are? You're not the only ones that have heard from God. We've heard from God too. So why are you exalting yourself above the congregation? And as with all rebellions, they gathered around themselves people who agreed with them and, and were of the same spirit. And they, they rejected God-given authority. And you remember what happened. Um, Moses said, well, let's meet tomorrow at the tent of meeting. Let's see what God has to say. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram showed up, and, as, and when they showed up, Mo, Moses and Aaron showed up as well, and suddenly the ground opened up and swallowed them whole and closed over them again. And that was the end of that. Discussion closed. 
I think I'm going, you the man, you the man, you the man. I think that's what I'm saying to Moses <laughs> after that. But God said, listen, God, God was essentially saying to the, all, all of Israel, when, when I put my hand on somebody to lead, be careful what you say, be careful what you do. Now, it's not that leadership can't be criticized. They can. And often or, or many times they should. But, but if you're trying to undermine that leadership, destroy that leadership, undercut that leadership, if that leadership hasn't sinned, and you're not talking about open sin, but you're just talking about, I don't like the way they do what they do. I don't like the way they dress, the way they talk. I don't like the way they handle themselves, if it's something like that, spurious like that, and you begin to undercut them and try to take people out from under their leadership and ruin what God is trying to do through them, then my understanding is you will meet the God who sent them. I'm real careful what I say about any spiritual leadership. Again, I'm not telling you you can't criticize leadership. I'm not telling you that leadership is perfect. Moses wasn't perfect. Aaron wasn't perfect. The only perfect leader ever came along was Jesus. And they didn't like him either. But the bottom line is, is that, yes, leadership has faults. Leadership makes mistakes. But you've got to be careful that you don't try to stop what God has anointed them to do. When you get in there, then if the leader's wise, he just turns the critics over to God and keeps on going and lets God deal with them. And sometimes he deals with them in ways you can see. Sometimes he deals with them in ways you never know about. But he deals with them. Now, then they are also described, that is, these false teachers, as idle talkers. That means they talk nonsense. All of the cults, folks, talk nonsense. Have you ever really investigated Mormon teaching or Jehovah's Witness teaching or Buddhists, Hindus, New Agers? All of their claims are nonsense. What Mormonism, for instance, is built on is pure nonsense. And yet they get away with it in, in amazing ways. And the only way they do and they do proselyte a lot of Christians. You know how they do it? Because Christians don't know their Bible. If you know your Bible, you would never believe what a Mormon tells you. And that's the truth. I'm just telling you the truth tonight. At Buddhists, it goes without saying. Jehovah's Witnesses, there's all kinds of fallacies and falsehoods in what they teach. But, but gullible Christians who don't know the Bible fall for it. And we're going to see in a moment what happens to them. But their doctrines are full of holes. And so... Uh, Paul says, these, these false teachers, Titus, that I'm telling you to deal with are full of nonsense. Yet people who embrace the nonsense are very often very vocal about it, and they become what Paul calls disputers. Disputers argue that right is wrong, truth is error, light is darkness, and Paul says they should be confronted by church leadership armed with sound doctrine. I'm going to say it again. Paul says they should be confronted. And how do you confront them? Argue with them? No. Listen, I've learned a long time ago, the only thing that changes anybody anytime is the truth of God's Word. That's it. 
Nothing else. You can argue all day long, and it will get you nowhere. But if you know the Bible, and you can deal with somebody according to the truth of the Word of God, that's the only way anybody will ever be changed. It's the only way you're ever going to shut the devil down. Is It is written. It is written. So they're full of nonsense. And then he goes on to say that false teachers are deceivers. The Greek word used here is found nowhere else in the whole New Testament. And it means to deceive one's own mind. In other words, they deceive themselves. They're self-deceived. It's one thing to deceive other people, but if you're deceiving you, you're in big trouble. If you're deceiving you, if you're convincing yourself over something that is wrong, then you're in real trouble. Paul says about these false teachers who are deceiving themselves, he says, these are the kind of people who beguile unstable souls. He says they creep into silly women's homes who are laden down with many sins and seduce women into this false teaching. In other words, they pick soft targets, easy targets. Paul the Apostle predicted in the last days, look what he says about people in the last days, false teachers. He says, imposters will go from bad to worse. And how will they, look, look at what they go through. Here's their cycle. Deceiving and what, everybody? Being deceived. See, what you sow, you reap. And if you're sowing deception, you're also going to be getting deceived yourself. So deceiving and being deceived. That's the false teachers. And our nation and our world is is infested with them. Now next, Paul singles out a particular group of false teachers. And these are the ones that were bugging him all the time. Uh, Especially those, he says, of the circumcision. Now, if you've been with me very long, I've taught many times about the Judaizers. Judaizers. Those who taught that you had to mix Old Testament law with New Testament grace in order to be saved. Judaizers were totally against the message Salvation by faith alone. See, how are you saved the minute you put your faith in Christ? Period. You don't have to do anything, jump through any hoops. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Not, everybody say with me, not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So we are not saved by mixing faith with works. But the Judaizers said, you've got to mix your faith in Jesus with the works that the Old Testament required. Circumcision being one of those. And the Judaizers were the most obstinate, difficult, and persistent of Paul's enemies. They dogged his every step. They subverted his converts. As soon as he won somebody to Christ, right along behind him came the Judaizers grabbing this person saying, he didn't give you the whole picture. You need to mix your faith with works in order to be saved. So Paul always had the feeling, right when I win a bunch of people to Jesus, I got these Judaizers coming along behind me telling them they're not really saved yet. They've got to mix Old Testament law with New Testament grace. They undermined his teaching. They distorted the gospel. Now notice what he says about them. Verse 11. Whose mouths must be stopped. That's from a Greek word, that word stop. 
the idea of a clogging up a water pipe so that water can't flow through it. In other words, let me paraphrase it for you. Shut your mouth. Or we would say they need to be shut up. I love Paul because Paul was really tough when he needed to be tough. He said their mouths ought to be shut up who subvert whole households. Look at what they do. Teaching things that they ought not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Now notice how Paul is anything but passive here, folks. I want you to please catch this. He tells Titus to fight, resist, confront, come against, face off with these false teachers with truth. He said you're going to have to silence them, and the way you're going to have to silence them is with sound doctrine. If Paul were alive today and taught such things, let me tell you what would be said about him. And I know, I know what would be said about him because I know what is sometimes said about me. Okay? Don't judge, people would tell Paul. Don't be a hater. Now, nobody's called me a hater yet. <laughs> be tolerant. I have been told that. Walk in love. I haven't been told that. But I have been told don't judge. Now, that's the nonsense, folks, that has spawned by the hellish philosophy of political correctness. Let me tell you about PC. Political correctness, in my estimation, is the most dangerous worldview, philosophical mindset to come down the pike since evolution. You know why? Because, because political correctness muzzles God's truth from being spoken. And you have no idea. Everybody in this room has been affected by it, and, and some of you aren't aware of it. But you start to say something at work, or you start to say something out in public, and you, you shut yourself up. And you know why you do? Because you say to yourself, I can't offend. I don't know about you, but the Jesus I read about offended people all the time. And you know what? Jesus offended me when I first heard the gospel. The gospel offended me. You know, the Bible says the gospel is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. But often, though you're not aware of it, you don't say what perhaps you ought to say because you have been programmed by the message of political correctness that you should never offend anybody. And if you offend somebody, you're not walking in love. You know what that is? Nonsense. That's nonsense. If I could speak to the whole church in America in one meeting, I would tell them, shake off the shackles of PC. Because it's keeping people from preaching the gospel, telling the truth, talking about sin, talking about hell, telling people they need to be saved because they're sinners who need to be saved by grace. We won't do it because we don't want to offend. But if you're going to live for Jesus, you're going to offend. Can I just tell you? If you're going to live for Jesus, you're going to offend people. That's why it says, he that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why are you going to suffer persecution? Because you've offended somebody. People are offended all the time. You might as well offend them with the gospel. I mean, everybody's offended about everything. I'm so sick of hearing people offended about this and that and the other, enraged about this, outraged about that. Get over it. Grow up. Put your tinker toys down. 
But that's what PC has done to our nation. It's turned us into a bunch of squabbling, crying babies who are always offended about something. Not Paul. Paul didn't worry about it. He said, don't be passive. These false teachers have to be stopped. They got to be silenced by sound doctrine. Have you noticed that PC is designed to silence only conservative biblical speech? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed with me that the preachers of PC don't, don't abide by it when they're dealing with you who don't agree with them? Have you noticed that? They, people who are not in the church and don't live a godly lifestyle and don't believe in Christ and we would call them liberals or leftists or ungodly. The Bible will call them ungodly. If you stand up and disagree with them, they are anything but tolerant of you. But if they say something that offends you, they expect you to eat it and fully be tolerant of them. I'm tired of it. I'm just going to come out with the truth. Come on, everybody. Speak the truth in love. Paul contends that when speech is evil or ungodly and is used to overthrow the true Christian faith, it should be answered and defeated answered and defeated by biblical truth. Paul points out that the false teachers are also, look what they do, they subvert whole households. Subvert means to overthrow and to destroy. The favorite method of all cult systems, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, is to invade the entire home and take it captive to false teachings. We've all heard the knock on the door and looked out there and seen two guys standing there uh, in black with a white shirt and a black tie. And we know what they are. They're Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you dare to open the door, you're going to catch it. You better be ready. And what are they there to do? I'm going to tell you what they're there to do. Subvert your household. Y'all are so quiet tonight. Did you have a hard day? subvert your household they want to overthrow and destroy your household isn't it interesting that the the teaching and the philosophy and the theology your home embraces can either bless it or destroy it if you if you receive the false teaching of a false teacher it subverts and overthrows and destroys your household as a pastor i've seen it done i've seen it done I, i I won't go into the whole story, but there, there were, in another church that I was pastoring, there was this wonderful couple in our church. They were just an older couple, and everybody loved them. They were just lovable, likable. They were sort of the mom and pop of the church. Everybody knew them. And, and somebody one day, without my knowing it and a lot of us being aware of it, but a false teacher wormed his way into their orbit, into their life, and began to share things with them that were anti-Semitic began to tell them how terrible the Jewish people are, how they're evil, how they're wicked. Really, it was Nazism. It was, it was just this terrible... And, and then began to teach them that Jesus really was never truly Jewish. He was Gentile, and it's wrong to say that he was Jewish. And, and, and they totally, this false teacher totally destroyed them. They left the church. They broke fellowship with everybody at our church. They began to run with only this guy and the people that were with him. And when the man died, 
I'm not even going to tell you what he said about Jesus to me. He cursed Jesus to me. This man, who used to amen me, sit on the front row, who was a father of the church, had been totally corrupted by false teaching. Folks, it matters what you believe. That's why I take you through books here on Wednesday night. I want you to know the Word of God. I want you to be grounded in the truth. Now notice what the false teacher's motive is. Here's his motive. Teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Uh Uh-oh. What are they after? They're after the victim's money. Not just their soul. Their money. He calls it dishonest gain because the way they get it is through falsehood. Our nation, now I'm going to get real with you tonight. If I offend you, oh well. (laughs) Because I got to get real with you tonight. Our nation is infested with, and I'm putting it in quotes here, preachers and teachers who profess to represent Christ, but if you listen to them, if you listen to them, all they ever talk about is money. If you were to take their messages and put them all together and, and break it down into percentages of how often in their messages they harp on, talk about, expound on money, it's 50, 60, 70% of the time or more. And they empty the pocketbooks of their listeners by false promises of extravagant blessing for having, quote, sown your financial seed into their ministry. Now, let me be real clear so I'm not misunderstood. I'm not saying you shouldn't support some ministries. You should. I do. But what I am saying is this. If all you hear them talk about is money, and how giving to them will bring you incredible, outlandish blessings. Be careful. You know how I know some of it is nonsense and false and a lie, what they say? Because when they tell you, if you send in your check, then God is going to do this, this, and this, and this for the rest of the entire year. If they really believe that, they'd empty their own bank account. Can I just be real tonight? If, if I know that if I invest, say, $100 tonight, and I'm going to get back, uh, you know, $5,000 by the end of the year, and that's good for every 100 I put in, I'm going straight to my bank, and I am emptying it out, and I'm putting it in. But they don't do that, do they? Have you ever noticed that the ones who preach it are virtually the only ones who ever get rich off of it? Boy, Jeff, you're really, um, you're really with it tonight. I am. I'm telling you the truth. I mean, look, God gave us a brain to think, right? God gave us a brain to think with. I'm just saying be discerning who you give to. Look around at what they... Now, let me tell you what true ministers of the gospel will talk about. True ministers of the gospel will talk about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They'll talk about soul winning. They'll talk about living a crucified life. They'll talk about dying to yourself. They'll talk about serving the Lord mingled with persecutions for doing so. 
They'll talk about producing the fruit of the Spirit. They'll talk about growing in Christian character. How do I know this? Because that's all Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude talked about in the epistles. See, when I hear somebody, I hold it up to what I see in the Bible. And if I don't see it in the Bible, I don't care how charismatic they are, how attractive they are, how well they can sing, how good they can preach, what a great stage presence they have. I could care less. I want to know, are you preaching and teaching my Bible? Okay, moving right along. And there's good people out there you can give to. Good people out there, and, and, and of course, your own local church, of course, because you can listen to me, and you can look at what we do. We're an open book. Look at what we do. Listen to what I preach. I guarantee you, you listen to me. I'm not patting myself on the back here. Listen, I intentionally hold myself to the Scriptures tight because if the Bible doesn't say it, I'm not going to tell you that God said something he didn't. But here's the deal. If you listen, not just myself, but what we teach here in this house, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified, soul winning, living a crucified life, dying to yourself, serving the Lord with persecutions, producing the fruit of the Spirit. I talked about that last Sunday, growing in Christian character. These are the themes of the New Testament, not money. <clears throat> And this goes on the radio. I don't know. I'm getting old enough now where I just don't care anymore. <laughs> no, I do care. I care about the truth. Now, next, Paul focuses on some of the worst transgressors of these things, and he calls them the Cretans. Now, remember, Titus is on the Isle of Crete, right? We shared that last time. Paul and Titus have been ministering on the island of Crete. Paul has left Titus in Crete. So when Paul talks about Cretans, he's talking about the people that he left Titus to minister to. Okay? So look at verse 12 and 13. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, shockingly, Verse 13, Paul says, you know what? That's true. This testimony is true. They are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, that's not very loving, Paul. You're not being very politically correct there. You're going to offend those poor Cretans. Look what he says due to them. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, the Cretans, Paul mentions, were Jews from Crete, who had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We know this from Acts 2.11, where Luke mentions the Cretans being there when the Holy Ghost fell. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And they had heard Peter preach, these Jewish, these Jewish Cretans, these Jews from Crete. And many of them had been saved. But as Jews raised in Judaism... They were particularly vulnerable to the Judaizers who swooped in and taught them, you've got to mix Old Testament law with New Testament grace in order to be saved. They were 
vulnerable to that message because they've been raised in Judaism. Now notice, Paul agrees with what others have said about the Cretans. They are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now why would he agree with such a harsh assessment? I'll tell you why. Because it was true. Now, we know from history that lying was chronic among the Cretans. Their propensity for lying even found its way into the Greek uh, vocabulary where a person was said to lie like a Cretan. You lie like a Cretan. You lie like a Cretan. They were such liars that that little turn of phrase came about in the Greek language. And they were called evil beasts. The word beast means wild beasts. And the word evil here means depraved or bad by nature. So the Cretans were lawless in their behavior, incorrigible. They behaved like wild animals. Now, not the saved ones, the lost ones, the ones they were trying to reach. He's describing the Cretan culture. I got to tell you, it kind of reminds me a little bit of America these days. And then he says they're also lazy, which means idle. They were unfruitful in anything worthwhile due to a life of slothful inactivity. They literally sat around doing nothing but eating, because he also says they are gluttons and practicing sinful behavior. So look at these people. What a picture. They, They lie, they're evil, they're wild beasts, they're lazy, and they're pigs. Sounds like a group I want to be sent to. What about you? (laughs) Oh, boy. Now, again, I want you to notice how if something was true, Paul didn't hesitate to say it. Remember when he said, Demas has forsaken me? He named names. Remember when he said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm? Watch out for him. He named names. And here he's talking about the Cretans, just naming it, saying it, telling the truth. He was anything, folks, but muzzled by a politically correct belief system. It wasn't in Paul. Yet in spite of this terrible assessment of the character of those occupying the island of Crete, churches, everybody say amen. Look at this. Churches had been successfully planted there and God was moving. Thank God for the verse that says, But where sin abounded, let's say this together, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Can we thank God for that right now? Where there is sin, grace much more abounds. The God who had transformed so many of the Corinthians who were so immoral and the Ephesians who were caught up in all kinds of false belief systems and the Colossians as well, could also transform the Cretans, and he can also transform Americans. Amen. Now, Paul's solution to the problem for Titus was this. Look at verse 13, second half of verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, let me talk to you about this for a minute, because again, we're dealing with something political correctness has saddled us with. And I'm so glad this goes out across the nation and 102 countries in the world because I want as many people as possible to hear that Pastor Jeff has an issue with political correctness. You know why? Because the Bible has an issue with political correctness. 
It is a muzzling, binding, chaining belief system that prevents truth from being spoken. He said, rebuke them sharply. There are times when a soft word of correction won't do. How many of you with kids know that's true? Come on, teenagers, how many of you know that's true? There's times when it will not do. If you say, Johnny, now don't do that, please. (laughs) Oh, no. How many of you know there's times you might as well whistle to the wind? You've got to rebuke sharply. There's times when a a sharp rebuke is required to turn someone around who has begun to slide back into lying, lawlessness, laziness, or lust. And that's what these Cretan Christians were doing. They were beginning to slide back because they had fallen prey to false teaching. Now the word sharply, rebuke them sharply, means an abrupt, blunt rebuke that would cut and hurt. In our day of political correctness, where the tendency to walk on glass lest someone be offended is everywhere, that mindset is found nowhere in the Bible. How many of you have ever had God, tell the truth now, rebuke you sharply? The rest of you, can I meet you afterwards and have you lay hands on me? Yeah, I mean, come on now. How many of you have at times disobeyed God and then done it again and done it again? You stiffened your neck to his... um, reproof and he came along and he lets you have it he rebuked you sharply let me ask again come on aren't you glad he did aren't you glad he did now amen give the lord a hand for rebuking you sharply (laughs) jesus often rebuked people sharply and bluntly it's funny to me how we so often hear uh, people say oh he was gentle jesus and i just love gentle jesus he was so gentle. I was listening to a guy on the radio on the way here tonight named Jeff Wickwire. <laughs> and I was telling a story that I'd forgotten about, but how I was talking to this one, <clears throat> one man one time about, about um, the Lord. And I said to this man, what do you think about Jesus? And you know what he said to me? He said, oh, I think Jesus was the greatest hippie to ever live. You know, Peace, love, flowers, tiptoe through the religious tulips, you know, gentle Jesus. And I was just amazed that he said such a thing. I was a hippie, and believe me, we were anything but Christ-like. All of you former hippies, raise your hand and say, I know that's right. Jesus was gentle indeed. Let me tell you who with. The widow who had lost her son. He was gentle. The woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of his garment, he was gentle. Mary and Martha, who had lost their brother to death, he was gentle. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh uh-uh. He rebuked harshly. Let me show you some of the names he called them to their face. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Not very PC, right? He called them hypocrites. He called them murderers. He called them proselyters who produce sons of hell. Jesus never hesitated to rebuke somebody sharply if the situation required it. 
One day he walked into the temple. They're buying and selling and all kinds of, and they're only there. They're not there to glorify God or praise God. They're there to make a buck. Jesus went outside and fashioned a whip and went back in with his whip. And let me tell you something. They were running out of every door to get out of there. And he threw the tables over. And he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he rebuked them sharply. He was not politically correct. And we're not called to be that either. See, I believe personally we've become too soft in the modern church by equating love with being nice. Listen carefully to me now. A true Christian, some people believe, too many believe, is called to be nice to everybody. Christian men should be really nice guys. A true Christian woman should be syrupy sweet, non-confrontational. But let me tell you something, church. Love is not always nice. And nice is not always love. Are you hearing me? I talk to lost people as often as I can. I get on the web and I, and, and I talk to some lost people. Woo! Let me tell you, there is nobody meaner or angrier than atheists. Boy, they're vile and angry and mean. And they prove I don't want to be an atheist because they're miserable. But you talk to them and you talk to them about the Lord. And there's times that you can't give a gentle answer anymore. You guys say, you guys say something like, you know that's a lie, you know that's stupid, you know that's nonsense. And don't expect me to believe that garbage. Have you done that, Pastor Jeff? Yes, I have. I confess it to you right here tonight. God hasn't called us to be nice. He's called us to walk in love. And love isn't always nice. And nice is not always love. Because you can be nice to somebody while they're on their way to hell. And what they really need is a sharp rebuke. I was dealing with somebody one time who had gotten hooked on meth. And they had been in the ministry. And I found out about them being hooked on meth and they were rapidly losing everything. Marriage. They'd lost the ministry. And they were about to lose their life because they couldn't stop. Teeth falling out, hair falling out, wasting away. I'm in prayer one day, and God told me something. God said, call them and say this to them. What do you want me to say to your children at your funeral? And I said, that can't be God. And it came right back to me. Call them and tell them. What do you want me to say to your children at your funeral? That's not soft. That's a sharp rebuke. So I called them. I said, this better be you, Lord. I called them. Hello. And, 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 and where they were was in a room with meth. And I said, hey, don't want to interrupt your party, but I have a question for you. Okay. And when they answered the phone, I said, hello. They go, hi, Pastor Jeff. 
I said, you're not going to feel that way in a minute. (laughs) And I said, I have a question for you. Okay, what do you want me to say to your children at your funeral? And they said, excuse me? I said, what what do you want me to say to your children at your funeral? Because God told me I'm going to do your funeral. And they said, I don't appreciate that. And I said, well, your children won't either. So what do you want me to say? And they started crying. And they hung up on me. I said, okay. I did my part. (laughs) You know, I found out later, they immediately got on the phone with their mom. He said, you're not going to believe what Pastor Jeff said to me. And the mom said, what did he say? And she told him. And the mom said, what would you say to him? Well, I didn't know what to say. And she repented. And that day, laid it down. That day, laid it down. And walked out of all this whole sinful world And now they're totally, totally, beautifully, wonderfully, gloriously restored. Ministering again. Now, if I had called and said, I don't want to offend you or anything, but is there anything I can pray with you about? They would have said to me, sure, you know, this, that, and the other. And we would have never gotten down to business. But God told me to have a sharp rebuke. And it it worked. Some you deliver by fear pulling them out of the fire. That's what the Bible says. I'm not saying we should be mean, but I'm saying we should at times be very blunt and not hesitate to rebuke sharply when needed. Always done in love with the recipients good in mind. Because look what Paul had in mind when he said, I want you to rebuke these backsliding Cretans sharply. Look what he had in mind, that they may be sound in the faith. When A Christian rebukes sharply. It's always with the recipient's good in their mind. Always. It's never just to castigate somebody. It's never to condemn somebody. It's always to turn somebody back. And the sharp rebuke should also serve to deliver them from made-up stories. Paul goes on, verse 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. The word for fable here is muthos. You can see we get myth from that. It means a made-up story, like something out of Brothers Grimm or a fairy tale. He said, you rebuke them sharply so that they don't fall prey to made-up stories. The goal of godly rebuke is to snap someone out of the trance of a lie. Can I say that again? Because a lie puts you in a trance. A lie puts you in a stupor. So the goal of godly rebuke is not to condemn, not to judge, not to castigate, but it is to snap somebody out of the trance of a lie. This person that I called that day, she was in the lie of this drug addiction. And boy, it snapped them out of it. A made-up tale. Not grounded in truth. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of those are built on muthos, myths, made-up stories, fairy tales. 
And then Paul also mentions not giving heed to the commandments of men, which are rules and regulations laid on somebody's back that did not originate with God's Word. Churches do this today. There's churches that are so legalistic, they, they load you down with things. They tell you, God doesn't want you this, God doesn't want you to do that, God, God doesn't want you going here, going there. And, and, and that's why so many people have summed up Christianity as being nothing but a bunch of rules and regulations. But it's not that at all. It's a relationship with a living Savior who sets you free to do things you could never do when you were lost. The Jews were famous for doing this. The Jewish rabbis, for instance, discussed for endless hours what constituted work on the Sabbath because God had told them in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, God had told his people, for six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall not work. Well, the Jews later took that and twisted it and contorted it and stretched it and made the Sabbath a nightmare of rules and regulations instead of a time of rest, reflection, and relaxation that God intended. You can walk into some churches and it's like you skated into God's frozen chosen. You can skate to your seat. It's so cold in there spiritually. (laughs) And there's no joy. You know why there's no joy? Because rules and regulations take all your joy away from you. Now, next, Paul targets their morals, and we're almost closed. Everybody happy tonight? Say amen or oh me. Okay. Verse 15. This is so powerful. To the pure, all things are pure. He's dealing with their morals now. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, the first seven words contain a great truth. I want you to say it with me. To the pure, all things are pure. What does that mean? The word pure here refers to a person who is pure as the result of cleansing and personal wholesomeness. It's telling us that to be pure is to be free from its opposite, impurity. It is to be spotless or without blemish. This person has been freed from corrupt desire and guilt. And as a result of what has happened to them on the inside... They are repelled by impurity from without, from the outside. See, when you're pure on the inside, you don't buy into impurity on the outside. Their inner purity repels impurity. So they're not corrupted by the impurity of the world. So to the pure, all things are pure because they don't buy into impurity. James wrote, pure religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The world's always trying to stain you, dirty you, uh, corrupt you, compromise you. And he says, pure religion, if you're really, if you're really pulling in tight to Jesus, he's going to help you to remain unspotted, unstained from the world so that to you who have been made pure within everything is pure but the opposite is also true he says to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but even their mind and conscience are defiled morally here's the truth morally polluted men think everybody is like them they believe everybody lusts like they do 
thinks like they do, lies like they do, and are corrupted like they are. I mean, have we not seen that in the last few weeks as God has been exposing sin from coast to coast, from Hollywood to New York, from the movie makers to the newsmakers? Haven't we seen this? And have you noticed that the men whose corruption has been exposed thought that everybody was that way? That's because when you're corrupted, you see everybody else the way you are. Their eyes are filled with lust, Paul says of the ungodly. Their tongues are filthy. Their ears seek out obscene talk. And their thoughts are depraved. Greatest example of this is the way the world was before Noah's flood. Listen to this description. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness, and that means depravity of man, was great on the earth. And that every imagination or intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Notice those words. Every. Only. Continually. Let me make a little bit of sense of that for you. The pre-flood generation never had a righteous thought. A wholesome, pure, godly thought, by the time the flood came, never crossed their mind. And these false teachers in Crete were depraved, both mentally and morally. Paul says even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now he closes Chapter 1, with one last final denunciation of these false teachers. I sure wouldn't have wanted to be one of them by the end of this chapter. But verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every work. Now the word deny means they contra- to contradict. So what false teachers say and do contradicts their profession of faith. If they really knew God, and if people today really knew God... Let me tell you what they would do. They'd take their Bible seriously and they would try to live by it. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Preach it. You're blessing me tonight. Amen. This very practice, this weird dichotomy that's happened in our country now, oh, it's such a paradox. You have so many people, oh, I go to church. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. But you look at the way they live, and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't adding up, because you, you say you love Jesus, and you say you're born again, and you say, you know, you go to church and all this. But when I see the way you live, you live like an atheist. It has, a new term has been spawned in our day, and it's called practical atheists. What's a practical atheist? A practical atheist is the person who claims to know Christ, But their lifestyle reflects no real belief in the Bible or any real fear of God. They live as if there's no God to answer to, like an atheist does. So they're practical atheists. They're living living their life out like an atheist who answers to no God. But they say they're Christians. Practical atheists. The false teachers were abominable. Objects of disgust, disobedient, obstinate rejecters of God's word, and disqualified, meaning frauds. 
Our final take on this second half of chapter one is this simple, it's a simple statement. We can make no compromise. We should never make a compromise with error and falsehood. We're called to be people of the book. If you're a person of the book, can you raise your hand? We're called to be people of the book. Now, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a man of the book. Am I a perfect man of the book? No. And I won't be till Jesus comes again. But am I a sincere man of the book? Yes. I sincerely seek to live by the book. Because this is God's word, and it can tell me what to do. Can God's word tell you what to do? Let's stand together. You know what we're going to talk about next time? You're going to wonder what I'm talking about. The need for exercise in the local church. I'm going to let you think about that all week long. But how many of you are glad for God's truth? Amen? God's truth. And you know what? Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and it's, it is that truth that will set you free. So can we lift holy hands to the Lord? And let's just say, Lord, help me to be a person of the book. Now, there's somebody in your life who needs a gentle answer, a gentle correction. And maybe there's somebody in your life that needs a sharp rebuke. I want to pray for you tonight that God will help you to know the difference. And maybe you need a rebuke. I know I get rebuked often just reading the Bible. Reading the Bible rebukes me. Father, I thank you for this precious congregation, this people of the book. People of the book. Lord, I pray that you will help us to receive correction ourselves. Help us to receive that corrective word. Help us, Lord, to bow to the way you want us to live. Because we know that when we do that, Lord, it's the road to freedom. Help us to distinguish between what God has told us to do and what man-made tradition is trying to lay on us. Help us, Lord, to shake off the shackles of PC and to not be ashamed of speaking truth in love. In Jesus' name, let's lift our hands and we're just going to worship him. Just for a moment, let's worship Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God is so good. God is so good. And God is so good. God is so good. He's so good. 